Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host Vince Peart. Once again and always we are joined by our co-host Tilly Baden. Tilly my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello everyone. Well, it's been a good week for me because I got my new car, as you know, Vince. So my new car was supposed to arrive in January or February next year, but it got to me early. Um, so I've got a brand new Audi Q2. Um, it's only a lease car. Um, I've not actually bought it, but um, I'm so excited. I've never had a brand new car before. And um, it's got that new car smell, which I love, and um, it's really nice to drive. So I am a happy bunny at the moment. We already had to drive out on a few visits, and I felt the bee's knees driving nice. around. I felt, um, yeah, it was really, really good. Have you, have you christened the car? <sighs> Do you know what? I'm in a bit of a dilemma about this. And I might open this up for listeners. If uh, if you've got any suggestions for an Audi, then I'm all ears. But I'm like, if I name it, does that mean... Like when I have to give it back in four years time, am I going to be really sad? I don't know. It's like fostering a car. Can I, I'm fostering it. Do I name no, it? Do you, do you, I... you pass that name on. That name goes forth with the car. You're yeah, its first but... owner. Whether you lease it or not, you're its legal owner. You've got it for four years. You're going to let your car just be nameless for four years and then let someone else do it. You surely can't do that to your car. No, no, I can't. Okay. All right. I'm open to suggestions because... I don't know. My last car was called Mercy and she was Mercedes. So that wasn't very, um, you're not called a queenie. <laughs> wasn't particularly creative. Q2, Audi Q2, Queenie. Queenie. I like Kiki. that. Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm open to suggestions. So if you've got any suggestions about what I should name my car, then please get in touch. I'll be happy to hear. Do cars have um, surnames? Do cars have your surname? No, no, cars don't have surnames. No, I do believe that cars are female. Um, mm-hmm. I know we shouldn't shouldn't presume genders, but um, I've always thought cars should be female. But um, yeah, quite open to names. We will we will see. Watch this space. I will let you know what I decide. No, um, we, shall, we shall wait. Ha- watch this space. Watch this space, indeed. How's your week been, then, Vince? How have you been? Not bad. Still been under the weather. Obviously, I mentioned to our listeners last week that I wasn't feeling too well. I, I don't have a temp fit, but I think I'm coming out of it just. But um, I was still went to a gig. I went to a gig with my best friend Jason on Friday, a local band called Pensacola Mist. They do like uh, 80s synth music and they do like covers. They do like 80s synth covers. So they do covers of... Um, Bring Me Back to Life by Evanescence in like an 80s oh, style. Oh, I love that song. All the yeah. Things She Said by Tattoo and they did uh, yep. like synth covers of um, like 80s tunes and it was really, really good. That was a really good night on Friday. I had a good night then and I've been working this weekend. I've, you know, I've worked Saturday, Sunday. I don't like to work weekends too much, but oh, I'm like you, Tilly, at times. You know, when, when someone asks you to do something in work and you think, I kind of want to help out and you look at your dime you Mm. think I can do that but it takes I will do it I'll do it as a one-off for a weekend and yeah I've done it so a bit naughty I'm a bit naughty because I try not to do this and it's um it's been a bit of a reminder working this weekend actually because as I got up on Saturday morning I got up really early because I had to drive five hours down to work on Saturday other end of the country from me and as I got up on Saturday morning I thought god if I hadn't said yes to this work six weeks ago, I'd have had this weekend in bed recovering. 
And I think that's that's the risk that you sometimes take if you um if you fill your diary full, whether that's with work, whether it's with life admin, whether it's just with fun times. If you commit to your diary where every day you have it full of something, it doesn't give you leeway when life turns up and gives you lemons. And I had this distinct yeah. feeling as I was driving off at 6 a.m. On, on Saturday morning in the dark, I was thinking, yeah, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. Mm. If, I, if I'd have just literally allowed myself the weekends to be free, like I promised myself I would, I'd have had this weekend in bed and I probably wouldn't have still been carrying my illness now three days later. No. Well, live, live and learn, but yeah, <laughs> knowing you and knowing me, we probably won't. Um, but um, let's just be clear, this isn't overtime, so we're not condoning people working above and beyond what they should be. This no, is no, no, independent this is, work. So, yeah. you know, um, I work as an independent social worker now, so it's me taking on bits of work that fits into my diary. Um, and, that, and do you know what? Actually, it made me miss full-time local authority work because... If I was working as a full-time social worker, I would have been able to take a week off on the sick. I would have been paid full-time. My cases wouldn't have been covered as fully, but there would have been a duty worker that could go out and see people. And independent work and agency work, it's often it's often lionized. It's often like glamorized. And people say, oh, it's brilliant. You know, people always make up lies like, oh, you know, you get to pay loads more money than that. Well, actually, you know, when you factor in the fact you get no sickness pay, you get no holiday pay. If I'm off sick for two weeks and don't get paid, nothing, zilch, nothing's coming in whatsoever. If I want to take holiday pay, I've got to take holiday. I mean, there's no wage coming in that week. Um, it did, it made me miss local authority work, Tilly, because you know if you're off ill and you're off poorly, yes, yeah, fair enough, it's going to be a struggle, but there's going to be plenty of people there that can cover your work or can tide you over, and you get sickness pay as well. So... It is a reminder to uh, people that glamorize independent work and glamorize uh, agency work that it comes with a price, does it not? It does. And, and it depends on your personal circumstances, doesn't it, as to which yeah. one, which route you should take. And that's why I've, although I do independent work on the side, that's why I still work as a full-time local authority. Yeah. I mean, a manager, but in, in social work, because um, I like that continuity and that reliability that I know that I'm getting the same amount every month and I've got that that flexibility as, as if I need holiday or if I need to take sick time, then I'm still getting paid. It has its perks. Um, well, just a couple of announcements to make before we get on with this week's show. The first one is uh, you and me, Tilly. We're going to be at the Social Worker of the Year Awards on uh, Friday night. So listeners, if you listen to this podcast on the day it comes out, on the 3rd of November, it usually comes out 5am GMT every Friday. Um, we'll be on our way down to London to the Social Worker of the Year Awards. So very excited, looking forward to that. As well as that, Tilly, um, we have got some exciting news about this podcast today. This Friday, as the show is released, is exactly our one-year anniversary. We launched on the 3rd of November 2022, a full year of social work radio, Tilly. What do you think about that? Well, happy birthday to us. Um, oh, it's amazing. Um, I mean, we've been podcasting under different shows for a long time, but this year, is, it feels like it, it's been a special year. We've covered a lot of topics, a lot of 
a lot of hard-hitting stuff, but um, mixed in with some more light-hearted topics as well. Um, and I'm really proud of what we create. I love doing our podcasts. So thank you for having me continuously. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks to you, Tilly. This show wouldn't happen without you. You are our co-host. It is uh, it is your baby too. Thanks to our listeners, each and every one of you who tune in on a weekly basis. You are absolute stars. And thanks also to our boss, our editor over at Social Work News, Nick Farrer. She puts the podcast together, she edits it, and she puts in a lot of work to get this in shape and ready for you guys. So it's been an honour. We've now done 49 shows. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with our 50th. Talking about our listeners, Tilly, we've had a review come in. Oh, it's a good one. Are you ready for me to read this out? I'm so excited about this one. Come on then. So this review comes from Abigail Juliet. And Abigail Juliet leaves us a five-star review over on iTunes titled My Favourite Podcast Ever. Abigail says, I found this podcast when it was back under its former name in lockdown when I was completing my MA in social work and I've been following it avidly for years. I found that the hosts are the perfect balance between hilarious and having a way with words, but also able to tackle extremely difficult and thought-provoking social work themes, which really get you thinking. And their passion for social work really shines through, and it's genuinely heartwarming to hear that even though they struggle, they both love their jobs. I love Friday mornings when the podcast comes out as it's part of my weekly routine to listen to it while having my morning swim. Even listening to the little jingle at the start brings a smile to my face. Thank you both so much. What a lovely podcast review from our friend Abigail. So lovely. Thank you so much, Abigail. We're glad that it's part of your routine. Um, how, hang on, how do you listen to it swimming? Do you have like waterproof headphones? I'm very intrigued about this. Or, or do you have it like blasting out? I, I'm I'm not sure. Do you have any ideas, Vince? Yeah, we'll have to ask Abigail. I mean, you can get waterproof headphones. Um, but Abigail, you'll have to let us know. And when you make the effort to uh, send us a message and let us know, um, why not double up and give Tilly an idea for her car's name too? How does that sound? <laughs> yes, for the price please. Of one. Absolutely. Yes, please, Abigail. We look forward to hearing from you. Right, guys. Um, it's a difficult podcast this week. We can't describe it any other way. Um, the reason we've gone for this podcast topic, which is about social workers who end up so hurt and so damaged and so traumatized and so affected by our profession that they end up taking their own lives. The reason we've gone with this podcast is uh, my weekly column that I wrote last week it was incredibly popular on this, had about 20,000 people read it. And it's really struck a chord. There's been hundreds of your comments, like, shares, and like I said, it's been read by uh, around 20,000 people in Camden. So we're going to discuss this today. Um, I do have to give a trigger warning for everybody before this starts. We will be talking about suicide. We will be talking about self-harm. We will be talking about issues related to mental health, stress, trauma, and the general impact the job can have on us, on our physical and well-being, on our emotional well-being, and generally just the toll that it takes in us in general. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about terminology and language before we get into that, though, because we do have to be mindful of the language you use when we're talking about things. Um, it is common, and many of us um, are used to hearing the word commit suicide or committed suicide. We're not going to use that terminology, we advise against it because we instead think that we should use the terms died by suicide, death by suicide, 
lost their life to suicide, or what I said earlier, take your own life, take their own life. We do this because the word commit can imply that suicide is a sin or crime, and it can reinforce stigma that it's a selfish act or a personal choice. Instead, by using neutral phrasing like died by suicide, it helps strip away the shame and blame element. The same goes for if we talk about um, survived a suicide attempt, lived through a suicide attempt instead of successful or unsuccessful suicide. The reason we use that language is the notion of a successful suicide is inappropriate because it frames a somewhat tragic outcome as an achievement or something positive. And as a matter of fact, you know, suicide, um, it's either fatal or not. So it's a fatal suicide attempt or a non-fatal suicide attempt. Instead of talking about terminology such as epidemic suicide rates or skyrocketing suicide rates, we'll try and use terminology like rising or increasing. The reason we're going to do this is words like epidemic can spark panic, making suicide seem inevitable or more common than it actually is. And instead, by using quite quantitative and less emotionally charged terms like rising or increasing, we can hopefully avoid instilling a sense of doom or hopelessness. Um, we wouldn't like to say things like so-and-so is suicidal. Instead, we would like to say so-and-so is facing suicide, is thinking suicide, has suffered suicidal thoughts or has experienced suicidal thoughts. The reason we're going to do that is we don't want to define someone by their experience with suicide. You know, this isn't a person who is suicidal. They are a person that has suicidal thoughts. People are more than just their thoughts, and they should be defined as such. And in a similar line of thinking, we're not going to use terms like he's suicidal, she's suicidal, they're a schizophrenic, she's bipolar, they're mentally ill. Instead, we're going to say things like he is facing suicide, she is facing suicide, they are thinking about suicide, they are experiencing suicidal thoughts. They have schizophrenia or are living with schizophrenia, people with mental illnesses rather than the mentally ill. The reason we do this is we believe that putting the condition before someone's name uh, reduces someone's identity, their diagnosis. People aren't their illness, they have an illness. And people's first language shows respect for the individual. So if we reinforce the fact that people's condition does not define them, they are a person with this, they are not this. So we're going to try our best to keep in line with what we believe is more appropriate language throughout this podcast. It may be occasionally we slip and we err. We certainly don't need to do that, and we'll do our best not to do that. These offensive terminologies, though, are so popular in the reporting, in the media, that sometimes we may be covering stories, and when we read them out, it's simply how they've been reported. But we certainly don't mean to do that, Tilly, and we certainly mean to be as respectful as possible and follow the language guidelines that we've set out there, do we not? Absolutely. Yeah, that's really important that we do our best to abide by that. Right. Um, so the article I wrote this week went over social workers that had lost their lives through suicide. And I discussed how there are many reasons for this. If people want to go over to mysocialworknews.com, you can have a look at this article. Um, it should be in the featured reads. If not, just search my name, Vince Payet, and it'll come up under the rest of my columns. So I was reflecting this week on essentially the the state of our social work profession and it's not looking good if you look at some of the big metrics we've got poor conditions we've got stagnant pay we've got little support we've got a toxic culture of unpaid overtime not everywhere but these things are prevalent this is seen in the fact we have a high sickness rate for our profession 
at the last time of asking, we had a vacancy rate of 20%. We know that the average social worker works 10 hours of unpaid overtime a week for free. We thought that most people, for the point of graduating, only last seven years of the job before leaving the profession for good. I've been writing about social work. I've been blogging about social work for eight and a half years. We've been doing the podcast on and off for almost six years now. And I'm in quite a fortunate position. You know, across my social media channels, I've probably got 600,000 people um, that I'm connected to. And I'm incredibly fortunate for that, having such a large following. And because of that, I hear from thousands and thousands of people on a weekly basis. And Tilly, that's how you contacted me first many years ago, was it not? It was. I remember that well. It was around um, a learning disability hospital, wasn't it? I think that yeah. I first contacted you. So, yeah. And, and look where we are now. Look where we are now. And I'm very, very grateful for that position that I'm in because I will get total strangers who then become friends who contact me. And because I've got a platform, because I reach out to people and I talk about things that resonate, I'm very lucky in the fact that I'll connect with people. And many, many times people will get in contact with me and share the difficulties. Messages from social workers who've been abused, attacked and assaulted by the people who go to work to try and help. Calls from social workers who've lost relationships, seen marriages end, become alienated from the children because work has taken over their entire lives. Letters from social workers who ended up on medication, hospital or on the verge of taking their own lives because of what the profession has done to them. And sometimes, whilst I haven't heard from people directly, I do hear from the friends and families of social workers who have died by suicide. One example of this, I'm not going to go through them all because you know, it, it is tricky and it is difficult, but one example I heard of a couple of years back was of a social worker called Annie Peel. Now, Annie resonated with me because Annie grew up and lived and worked in my home county of Cumbria. And she was 66 year old and she'd been a social worker for 28 years when she took her own life. And the coroner said in the coroner's report that Annie took her own life after falling into a severe depression triggered by changes at work and issues which left her deeply unhappy with how she was managed. As well as Annie, there was another social worker that I was made aware of several years back who um, took her own life and died by suicide because her department was restructured and the pressures of her job reached unbearable levels. Her husband was incredibly brave and spoke at the coroner's inquest into her death. And I'm going to read out his exact words here, Tilly. She wasn't able to get through her workload without putting in extra work at home. And then with the problems with IT, her hands were tied. She wasn't able to sleep for the last five nights of her life. And there's one final, um, one final story that I reflected on. This is very graphic listeners. So, you know, you may want to step away for 30 seconds just while I read this out. But this social worker had left home to go to work at 6 a.m. one morning. And was gone for five minutes before her husband heard a knock on the family's front door. After answering the door, he found his wife lying there on the doorstep with severe burns to her body. She set herself a light on a nearby patch of grass before walking back to see her husband one last time. She died from multiple organ failure after suffering 90% burns to her body. During the inquest into her death, local police were involved and they commented how a recent Ofsted inspection at her work as a social worker had increased her stress levels. The coroner was quoted in a local newspaper, and I read this at the time, saying... She seems to have been very stressed at work after gathering accounts from people she worked with 
and express this to her husband. Her husband, um, you know, she was a mother of two children, so she left behind her two children and her, and her husband. Her husband also spoke at the inquest and in eerie similarities to the last one that I'd mentioned. The husband said she brought a lot of work home and that week she could work all the way through the night. I cannot comprehend why my brilliant wife could do this to herself and us deliberately. She loved us too much. Now those are three accounts there, Tilly. Three women who took their own lives. Three female social workers who took their own lives. I will put this to you, given what we've heard there and what we know, that I believe would still be with us today, if not for the things they were forced to endure in the workplace. Is that wrong of me to say? Well, no, it's not wrong. Because that's how that's what the coroner has said in those cases, and we need to respect and um, believe what what the coroner's inquests find. They're, they're yeah. fact finding cases, so so that is 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 very fair of you to say because that is what has been found within the coroner's inquest. Hard to hear then, Tilly. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, there's only so much you can say and think about that. It's a very limited scope and how any compassionate human being can react, but. What do you think of when you hear stories like that? Obviously, you've read them in my article. You'll have heard them before. You'll be aware of many others. You know, we've run stories like this before, and you may have picked up on ones yourself that we haven't covered in the social work news. But how do you feel reading things like that and hearing about these accounts of our colleagues that have um, ended up in these heartbreaking and heartrending positions? I mean, it's so tragic, and and words don't do it justice. Neither or none of those three women and and countless others out there who have died by suicide should be in that position. I mean, they should be in that not be in that position at all, but certainly not through their employment. When employers have a duty of care to make sure that we are are looked after and that our well-being is respected and that our workloads are manageable and when those safety nets have failed and people have taken it upon themselves to to put on that that extra pressure and working as as we heard there all through the night not sleeping that is so dangerous and employers and organizations should really be held to account in these cases because that, that should never have been allowed to happen, no matter what was going on in those social workers' lives. Work yeah. shouldn't have been the trigger for that. Are you able to talk about any experiences you've had of yourself when these kind of things have happened to people in your own workplace or you've been aware of issues or anything like that happened in your personal life? I mention this because I've got you know three people who were dearly close to me who um, died by suicide, uh, and I'll discuss those next. But have you got anything that you would be willing to share? Have you ever been touched by these issues yourself, Tilly, and feel able to share them on the podcast? I mean, I'm only aware of of one person, one ex-social worker, who actually it was this year took his own life. Um, although he had been retired from social work for a few years, he had been suffering um through a long-standing mental health problems mm. um that was that was really tragic and I, I can't say whether that was as a result of social yeah. work or anything we will never know um he had been retired but that that obviously affected many of of the people in my organization that had worked with him um mm. I, I hadn't actually worked with him personally although i'd met him a few times but he was in the team that i had been 
that then I joined after just after he had left. So yeah. I actually had many of his, his cases. Um, and he was a very, very well-respected social worker. The, the people he supported absolutely loved him and valued him. Um, so that was a, a tragic um, thing to hear about that um, earlier this year. But I mean, fortunately, that that is my only experience for for colleagues. Certainly, I mean, we deal with with um, people that are having suicidal thoughts or people that that end up dying by suicide on a daily basis with with the people that we're supporting or, or trying to support. Um, working through mental health services and certainly in mental capacity act work, we we come into contact. Um, with people that are experiencing these sort of difficulties many, many times. Um, so from a, a work perspective, I, I, I see that. Um, but yeah, I've been, I suppose, fortunate um, to not have, have come across it too much um, within my colleagues. And I'm just aware of one person in my personal life, uh, uh, um, uh, one of my friend's husbands um, died by suicide in, in his 40s. Um, that a few years back um who he was experiencing significant mental health problems and and stresses but yeah they're, they're the ones that that i'm that have touched my life but um yeah w- what about you the, i know that you've got a story that you want to share with us yeah so you know it's three true people that i was very close to um whilst growing up from a hometown of holston who all died by suicide um First one was uh, a young man called Mark. Um, I was very close, you know, best friends for a period with um, with Mark's older brother, John. Uh, John being the same age as me, he was in my year at school. Me and John were incredibly close. Our fathers were, were very good friends as well, both Coleman and both me and John, uh, both named after our fathers. We always used to joke it was a Coleman tradition, you know, his father being John, then him being John, my father being Vince, then me being Vince. You know, the dads were friends. How could the sons not be friends? And because I was such good friends with John, I was such good friends with his younger brother, Mark. And um, he died by suicide Christmas Eve 2010 or 2011. Can't remember which. And that was a, 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 a great shock. Um, Mark was someone who from the outside world would seem like he had everything, you know, he was strong, he was fit, he was handsome, he was uh, excellent in his career, Um, came from an affluent family background, he had a beautiful girlfriend, they were engaged to be married, and he was a a motocross champion, so he was very sporty, he was confident, he spoke well, he was, you know, he had everything literally had everything and that that was a shock you know hearing that in my mid-20s as I was at the time if this could happen to him and he could be in that situation it could be any of us could be any of us now obviously suicide is a tragedy whenever it happens whether people are at the lowest of the law on the highest of the high position but it was that that was a, a real shock to me at the time that from the outside looking in this is a a young man that was sort of revered held up as a sort of hometown hero so that was was very very difficult going back a a little bit earlier um my cousin jane 
She died by suicide. She was in her mid-twenties, and that was just a call out of the blue from my dad. That was a couple of years earlier. That would have been in summer 2010. She was just found lifeless in a bedroom. Um, that was very, very difficult. Um, there was a certain song by Robbie Williams that was played uh, at a funeral as a coffin was led in, and I just can't hear that song now. I can't even listen to it on the radio. It's It's very, very difficult. And that was really, really hard. I often think about Jane and again, mid-twenties, life ahead of her, you know, looking at it from the outside in, the family wouldn't have had a clue. Nobody was suspecting of it. Just just happened. Just 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 happened. And then um my old best friend David, he took his own life. Now, unlike Mark and unlike Jane, I had lost contact with David when he died by suicide and it, I'd lost, we'd lost contact in quite tragic circumstances. We'd had a big fight when, oh God, I was 19 and he was 19. We, we were inseparable for a, a whole year. And for a summer, me and David were best friends. He was my best friend, you know, um, David really, really helped me out when I was in a very difficult position in life. The, the transition to adulthood wasn't easy for me Tilly. it wasn't, um, the age from, sort of 16 to to 19 that three-year period was very very difficult for me i was a somewhat lost young man for about two and a half years i didn't really know where my life was going i was involved in difficult behaviors that i wouldn't go into on the podcast i was doing things that i shouldn't have done i was directionless i was leaderless i didn't really have a moral compass at the time and i was kind of struggling to assert myself as a as an individual human being that transition from childhood to adulthood was very very difficult for me i didn't have any direction in life i didn't know what i wanted to be i didn't know who i wanted to be i didn't know which group of friends i wanted to attach myself to i was just very malleable and very keen to please and very quiet. You would not believe it, Tilly. You would not believe how <laughs> quiet I was when I was a young man. I was so quiet that one of the older boys used to call me the silent one. I was so scared and I was so nervous for a long period of my life that I wouldn't even talk to people. And uh, yeah, you would, if the people that knew me at that period of my life cannot believe what I'm like now, people that know what I'm like now cannot believe what I was like then. But David sort of saved me from that. He was um, he was a real good example for me. You know what it's like when you're a teenager and you kind of you push against your parents' role as a role model. If you you're not if you have to have that feeling with your parents, like regardless of how good your parents are and what they do to you, they'll never be right. Did you go through that period as a teenager? Yeah, everything everyone does, don't they? There we go. So my dad was a role model for me, but he wasn't because I was pushing against it. Looking back now, he's the best role model I could have had, and he is my role model. You know, he's my guiding light, and he's he's the main key formation of my personality. Everything good that I do, all my good traits, I attribute to my father. His love, his care, his guidance, his affection, the model behaviours. He's you know he's the man that I want to be. And um, in times of darkness, I take solace in my father's lessons that he taught me that I didn't even know that I was being taught at the time, just by him being who he was and doing what he did. But David, um, he he was there in my life as a peer who was living right. He had his own house, a little flat. 
he had a girlfriend, he was working. Um, he was still doing the stupid stuff we all were as teenagers, but he was keeping it together. He was able to go out and have fun on a weekend, but still get up on a Monday morning and go to work at a local factory that he worked at. He gave me a friendship. He gave me a place where I could be myself. You know, I could be myself around him. I could start talking again because I had a friend who I didn't feel was going to judge me because all my other friends, I would always ever really see in a group setting. With young lads, it's like you're always in a group setting and you're always kind of subconsciously vying for supremacy. Everyone wants to be the alpha and you sort of sit back in the pack. You don't, you don't want to put your head up because you don't have the mick taken out of you. But with David, he was a friend that I just had to myself. Me and him were best friends, just the two of us, so it could be ourselves. And he really, really brought me out of my shell. I met um, my first girlfriend, Zoe, through him. And that gave me even more confidence because then I had a friend and I had a girlfriend. And because I'd had difficulties with my mother and because I was pushing away my dad's love and my dad was quite a traditional man. I couldn't, you know, you can't really tell, can't really tell your dad that you love him when you grow up on a council estate and you're trying to be a tough guy and your dad's a tough guy. That's just not what you do. Do you know what I mean? You shake hands and you're like, butt heads. You don't tell people you love them. You know, that's just what men do. It's not what I believe men do, did. But because I had a, a best friend, I must be okay because, well, he likes me. He loves me. He's my, my best friend. Kind of everything that I went on to do with life, if I track back my life, I was at a real crossroads. I could have ended up in prison like some of my friends did. I could have ended up lost to hard drugs like some of my friends were. I could have ended up in really bad ways like a lot of my friends were. I could have ended up just living the same life that I was back then, just stuck in a permanent loop of looking forward to the weekend, getting blasted, getting out of my head, going to work on Friday and just being in the ever end of loop of all you ever looking forward to the weekend and never breaking out of the two star town that I was born in. But I didn't, but I didn't. And I, and I credit David for that chiefly. And then I credit Zoe for that secondly. But me and David had a fight. We had a fight over Zoe. Um, I was too naive and I was too immature at the time to realize that the reason he was trying to push Zoe out of my life wasn't because he wanted her or he hated her or he hated me. It's because he was jealous that I had a girlfriend and the girlfriend was taking me away from him. But because I was too naive and too immature to see that at the time, we ended up having you know, a serious physical fight. It was really, really bad. And then we had another fight again, a serious fight, and that was it. And I never spoke from, never heard from again. By that time, we ended up at university and I'd gone. My life had moved on, thanks to him. I never got a chance to thank him. And then just one night out of the blue, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to search him. You know, I'd, I'd grown up, and this was maybe eight years ago. I thought, I'm just going to search him, see how he's getting on, because I'm ready now. I was about to become a father. Um, my wife at the time was pregnant with my daughter. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to start making amends for things that I've done wrong in life. I'm going to grow up now. And as well as, you know, as well as being a good dad, I'm going to be a good person too. And I want to be the kind of person that my daughter can look up to. And I want to be good enough for her. And that means being the decent man and doing the right thing. So I searched his name. And the first thing that came up was a coroner's report for him. And I thought, oh God, it was awful, Tilly. It was awful. I thought, oh, this can't be happening. The first thing that came up was a coroner's report. And I was shaking. I was like, no way, no way. I thought, I couldn't read it at the time. I couldn't read it. I took a couple of hours and I couldn't sleep. I'd, I'd searched it like 11 o'clock at night and I couldn't sleep. I thought, I'm going to have to read this because if I don't read it, I'll just stay up awake all night. And I read it and um, went into detail. 
about how he took his own life, how he died by suicide, went into detail about um, the fact that he'd been to his GP a couple of weeks before and he'd been prescribed antidepressants, but there hadn't been a follow-up. There hadn't been a follow-up and, and, and the coroner said, well, the GP should have followed up really. There should have been some sort of aftercare because he was in a bad way. And, you know, we know that sometimes when people are at that point in the first time to take antidepressants, it can be all over the place and it can, it can make things worse. And um, I read that he had a daughter and um, yeah, and uh, I felt ever so sorry reading it. I felt ever so sorry. And I just thought I never, I never got to thank him and say what he did for me. And, I, and I'll never get that. I'll never get that chance again. So when we discuss things like this, Tilly, it means a lot to me because, um, you know, I've lost a cousin this way and I lost a best friend this way and I lost a local hometown hero this way. And it is, um, it's difficult. It's difficult. But I think we've got to, even though this is difficult, I think it's important we talk about these things because I, I look back and if there was anything I could have done, anything I could have done, I would have done something. You know, I wish I could have done something. You carry these things with you. You carry these things with you. And it's hard, it's hard. But it, even though it's hard, I think um, I think we've got to talk about these things, haven't we? We have. We have. And Vince, I wish I was with you so I could give you a big hug. Um, yeah. That was, I think, it is really important to share these stories because they affect everyone all of our listeners out there um so on behalf of all our listeners thank you for sharing that i know that took a lot of courage to do so um and and just thank you and our thoughts and prayers and and well wishes are with with you and and all of their family and friends we've got to do that on this podcast though Tilly. we always say that on this podcast you know we think it's very important that we're honest and we're genuine because if we can be genuine with ourselves and we can be vulnerable and if we can share what we're facing and what we're going through and what we know, if that helps just one person, it's worth us going to the well ourselves and digging those things up, is it not? It is. And it's an important message for, for all of us that this can affect absolutely anyone, exactly. no matter what their their lives look like from the outside. It can be your closest loved ones or it can be distant acquaintances. It really can be anyone. Um, so be kind to people when you, whenever you can. Um, show people compassion and thought and check in with people as well as and as often as you can and if you do know someone is going through a difficult time don't be afraid to ask those difficult questions because there's still so much stigma around mental health and suicide but actually we have to be prepared to talk about it because that could save someone's life if if you say look mate i know you're having a, a really difficult time at the moment yeah. How is your mental health? Have you had those sorts of thoughts? Um, that that opening up the conversation and just being there for someone could save a life. So we all must do that all the time. Yeah, because, you know, I used to hear things like, you know, this could happen to anyone. You never know what people have gone through. When you dismiss these things, you think, oh, never happened. Never happened to me. Never happened to my friends. It's always other people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it can be a difficult one. It can be a difficult one indeed. 
Um, right. Let's talk about social work. Let's bring this back to social work. Social work has a toll on us. It really does have a toll on us. And as we've seen from the accounts of three social workers that I spoke of earlier, um, we know that social work and the pressures it brings to us had a contributory effect in each of those three situations. It can be hard. It can be terribly hard at times what we are forced to endure, Tilly. And I don't think that is always recognised. Look, it's, it is recognised by us. We talk about it a lot. I'm not saying we're heroes for doing that. We're special for doing that. But we do talk about it. But do we talk about it enough? And do our employers talk about this and guard against this enough? No, I don't think employers in general do. Um, well-being offers are sadly lacking, as we've talked about on the podcast many times, and offering a yoga session or a mindfulness session is not good enough when the conditions themselves are so dire. No social worker should feel like they are having to do those extra hours or take on those extra responsibilities working through the night or or waking up during the night or or having those those moments where they feel powerless or are really really concerned about someone that they're working with and not get that right support risks i mean we're working in a, in a high risk environment and often in, in people that are experiencing significant abuse and neglect and harm but all of these risks should be shared no one no individual social worker should feel like that risk sits squarely on their shoulders because that's not the case safeguarding is everyone's responsibility whether you work in children's or adults or or whatever wherever you, you whatever sector you're in um it's it should be a shared responsibility and yeah. Our employers should do more to protect social workers from feeling like or, or even explicitly blaming them or putting too much pressure on them um, or certainly implying it in any sort of way. Sometimes we can think of the worst possible case scenario. I'm going to say sometimes. I'm, I'm making that up. All the time. There are some <laughs> social workers who all the time tell me I'm wrong here. There are some social workers who all the time will catastrophize and think about the worst possible case scenario when it comes to our clients, the people we serve. Is that unfair of me to say, Tilly, or we, do we both know or have known many social workers who always think the worst of our clients and always think that the most disastrous situation is going to come to light? Is that fair for me to say? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, there are many people that feel like that. And I think actually we can all slip into that um, mindset within with certain people um, mm -hmm. and think the absolute worst is going to happen. It is hard to remain objective and evidence-based all the time. That takes a lot of skill and practice and the right headspace to do it. And when you're under a lot of pressure, mm. you, you slip into subjectivity and you do catastrophize things because you, you, you lose that headspace to be able to think rationally. So we can easily crisis manage and think of the worst possible case scenario and risk assess of our clients. Yes? Yes. How often do we do that with our social workers? Not how enough. Do, not, well, enough do, how, not enough. How do we ever do it? Um, very rarely, I think. In um, your entire career as a social worker, 
and as a manager of good standing and good reputation and sound morals, how many times have you been in a room where it's considered, do you know what, actually, if we push this social worker too far, they may end up cracking to the point where they end up seriously harming themselves. Have you ever heard that said once or suggested once? No, it's normally, it, it, it normally stops that they'll, they'll go off sick. That's it. They'll go off sick and that's it. They will go off sick. Yeah. That is what's said. That's the term. Mm. They will go off sick. So we think about, you know, we think about the, the probably the least worst result. And again, I, you know, I'm not asking this to implicate anybody in here. When that idea of that social worker will go off sick, is that framed within the needs of that social worker or is that framed within the needs of the organisation? I'd like to say both. More too often, it's about the needs of the service. There we go. Or oh, the needs of the service users. Let's, 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 let's be a bit more positive here and a bit more benevolent. Okay. If, you know, yeah. it's, it's that. That's generally the way that it can go, okay? That's generally the way that it can be. So why do we have this ability to catastrophize? when it comes to our clients, but not when it comes to our social workers? I think it comes down to the dehumanisation of our workforce. Bingo. We're just Bingo. cogs in the machine. And we don't matter when it comes to sacrificing at the altar of KPIs. No, no, exactly. And it can be difficult. It can be very, very difficult indeed. And it is a concern for me. Now, look, people may say we're catastrophizing. Yeah, I'll take that on board. That potentially is a fair accusation. People may equally say that my um, choice of words sacrificing there is probably inappropriate. Yep, that may be the case as well. I do apologize for that. I've slipped into a terminology that often we use when it comes to uh, workplace and the catastrophic nature of what happens when social workers are burning out after seven years, not coming back into the career forever when social workers are going off on sick when we have a 20 percent vacancy rate and our government decide that the best way to address this vacancy rate may be to cap wages to ban project teams and to set limits on how long people have to be in the career before they can choose to work as an independent or an agency worker thankfully most of those rules have been scrapped and thrown out because of the farcical nature of what they really are has been seen right through but that mentality does belie an attitude of it's the social workers that are to blame here, not the conditions, but the individuals. And you take that to the extent, the far extreme, when people blame themselves for all the problems in the world and people take that burden onto themselves and cannot cope, what is the risk that happens to that person? Exactly. It's, it's not okay. It is not okay at all. And that is the worry. And I just, I think there's, there's far more we can do. So on that, and before we wrap up today, guys, um, I'm going to ask you this one, Tilly. What can we do? What can we do to support those at risk of self-harm and dying by suicide? It starts off by every colleague and every manager taking responsibility for the well-being of their colleagues and their employees um, and making sure that system pressures don't get passed on to individuals these are shared systems these are shared um, risks that need to be taken across the entirety of organizations no one should have to face that on their on their individual shoulders um, and 
just keep checking in with one another. If you know someone's having a tough time at work, don't be afraid to ask those difficult questions around self-harm and suicide. Um, we talk about being more open about um, discussing mental health issues and suicide and self-harm goes hand in hand with that. So we just need to keep the conversation going. I think that's what we can each all of our listeners and, and, and us included can personally take responsibility for because we're not going to change the world we, as much as we will, might like to think that we can sometimes. Um, we're not going to have a magic wand to change these system pressures that we've got. We've got a, a finite set of resources and, and, and limited um, abilities to affect positive change for the people that we're supporting. But what we can do is ensure that those system pressures don't get passed on to individuals. And we do our best and we do it wholeheartedly and um, to, to the very best of our abilities. But it, we remember and all of us remember that it is just a job and that mm. our lives and our well-being is far more important than our occupation. Well said, my friend, well said. Um, before we finish today, guys, I'm just going to give a list of support services. Now, we have listeners in over 100 countries, so I'm just going to read out um, four support services from our four most uh, listened to nations. So for the UK, um, you can speak to Samaritans by dialing 116123. They're available 24 hours a day. In the US, you can dial the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, who provide 24-7 free and confidential support for those in distress and offer prevention and crisis resources. For our listeners in Canada, for yourself or the clients you're working with, you can contact Talk Suicide and connect to a crisis responder to get help without judgment. You can call them toll-free 24-7-365 on one 456 Six, six. And for our listeners in Australia, you can call Lifeline Call on 131114. Again, they're a 24-7 crisis support line. For listeners further afield, um, I would just advise you to go onto Google and search local uh, crisis support, suicide helpline, and look for relevant services that you can use yourself or signpost others to. Um, Tilly, thank you very much for... Um, being with me and doing this show this evening it's been a difficult one there's been heavy subjects but i um i appreciate your uh, your kindness and your help and your warmth and love that you've shown me and that our listeners have been shown by your nature too so um thank you ever so much for that and thank you to you for sharing those personal stories um it's important that we're real on the podcast and that we share our experiences, but I know that they were really difficult for you to talk about, but thank you. Um, and I hope you're, you're okay. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Um, we'll be back next week, guys, where we'll have been at the Social Worker of the Year Awards. So tune in next week for mine and Tilly's rundown from the Social Worker of the Year Awards. Do head over to our social media channels and uh, check out some of the pictures we'll be posting from the night there too. 
If you would like to read over uh, the column that I've done and any other articles relating to social work, head over to mysocialworknews.com. Uh, it would also mean a lot to us if you could leave a review, just as Abigail Juliet has. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, anywhere else you get your podcasts from, and do leave us a review. We'll be back next week, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.